to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Several days ago, we asked our listeners what kind of questions they had about coronavirus, COVID-19, the quarantine, and everything that surrounds it. We got questions about the quarantine. We got questions about medical treatment. We got questions of a more general medical nature about masks. And probably the most important questions were about who is truly vulnerable to COVID-19. Now it's time to answer those questions, and joining us to do so on this Wednesday afternoon, the 25th of March, Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth. He's a postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Dr. Wolgamuth, welcome to Issues Etc. Hi, thank you. I do have to say at the outset that I am speaking today as a private citizen and not as a spokesperson for my employer. Dr. Wolgamuth, most of us, average citizens were really caught off guard by not only the virus and its growth, but by the reactions to those things. Were people in the infectious diseases field, were they surprised? Most people that study viruses are actually pretty familiar with the way that coronaviruses tend to emerge over time. You remember we had the the SARS outbreak in the 2000s, We had the the MERS outbreak more recently. And so it's really just a matter of time until another coronavirus, like the current SARS coronavirus, the previous SARS coronavirus, or MERS coronavirus emerge. And so while it's very difficult to predict when that will happen or what virus exactly will emerge, we do kind of expect these viruses to come out over time. And they can have different effects. They can fizzle out quickly like the original SARS, or they can spread uh, in a pandemic fashion like this one. So while we expected something eventually, we didn't specifically expect this virus to emerge right now. Coronavirus is a general term. What makes this particular version different, or do we know? So we don't know exactly. It's actually some human coronaviruses cause simply just cases of the common cold. Some, obviously, like the original SARS coronavirus and this new one, tend to cause much more severe disease, especially in susceptible populations. And that's something that there are lots of great scientists working on right now to try to figure out what exactly it is about these viruses that make them so different. Let's go to some listener questions, beginning with Michael in Natoma, Kansas. He says, One report said it was going to clear up soon. Another said it was going to get much worse. Who's right? So I'm guessing the report that said it's going to clear up soon has to do with uh, the potential seasonality of the virus. And since this is a new virus, we really don't know how seasonal it's going to be. Most coronaviruses, the, the human coronaviruses that cause the common cold, do seem to have a seasonality that causes them to decrease in the summer. So there is a chance that this virus could just naturally decrease in spread this summer. But quite frankly, we don't know. It could 
based off of the current best modeling data, this virus will likely be around for at least another 18 months or so and infect about 50% of the population in that time. Nathan asks, what does the ratio of the total people tested to the positive cases show about the current state of the pandemic? Should the percentage be rising, staying flat, or falling at this stage? It's always tough during a pan- emerging virus pandemic like this. It takes a while to get a lot of the tests online. And so a lot of the spikes in cases that we've seen recently aren't necessarily a spike in infection. They're just a spike in our ability to detect infection. So if you look at some of the the maps available online, they show huge increases in virus cases over the last few days. And part of that is because the virus is spreading, but a part of it is also just because we are implementing tests faster and faster. So we're able to detect more and more cases. Patricia asks, if one is diagnosed with COVID-19 and recovers, is reinfection possible or is the body immune to reinfection? This is a, a great question. Um, there have been a couple case reports where people were sent home after having apparently recovered from COVID-19 and then did c- go back to the hospital and have what appeared to be reinfection. However, we know that with the original SARS virus, that this virus is, can be very good at sticking around in the lungs. So it's very possible, and I would say likely, that these weren't cases of reinfection. They were actually cases of the virus just persisting for a, a long period in that person's lung. And in that case, we have a problem between detection, detecting infectious virus versus just viral RNA, which is evidence that the virus was there. So in this case, I think that reinfection is very unlikely and that you will get at least immunity that lasts for the short term, even if that's just a couple of years. But again, reinfection is going to be unlikely with uh, this virus. Lots of questions about quarantine situations. Matt in Niles, Illinois asks, what's the worst that can happen? It's a serious question that I have. What if all the quarantines were suddenly lifted and everyone went about their normal lives? What would happen to mankind then? It would not be very good. Some of the current modeling shows that if we take no action, no social distancing measures, that this virus would infect every human in a a rather short period of time, and that the death tolls in the United States, for example, could be as high as 3 million. Elise says, there are so many different options on how long it will take before the virus peaks in our country. Are there any reasonable predictions out there? Are there any encouraging reports from a medical standpoint? Uh, This is a good question. So it's hard to tell exactly because the models have to assume certain amounts of adherence to the social distancing measures. And if you look at the current rate of increase in new infections per day, it's going up and up. And that number will continue to go up until about five, six days after we implement some of these social distancing measures. So the, the peak could be relatively soon if the measures we've taken so far have been effective. But if we still need to take more efforts to mitigate the spread of the virus, it could continue to go up regardless of the precautions already in place. 
Dutch in Wisconsin asks, what's the actual timeline for the lockdown? I'm guessing 30 to 60 days. Could that be right? It's a little bit too early to tell. I think the current recommendation uh, of about another 14, 15 days is going to be kind of a soft guideline. We'll kind of reassess things. As I mentioned, we'll start to see soon whether some of these precautions are having a, a negative effect on the ability of the virus to, to spread within the population. So if everything looks good, it could potentially start, you could potentially start seeing some of the lockdown precautions relieved after that time, or if things are still bad, you could see them last for a while longer. I do expect within a couple months at the longest for the more extreme lockdown measures to, to be in place at the, at the longest. Rachel in Madison, Wisconsin asks, what happens after the period of isolation? Does the virus just fizzle away or does it continue to lurk? If I understand this question, it's about what happens after we stop these extreme social distancing measures. And quite frankly, we, we aren't sure, but the experiment is actually being done in China right now. China did a great job in doing a lot to stop the spread of the virus. And essentially, they've stopped new cases from occurring. However, they still have a lot of people who are still susceptible to the virus. And they do seem to be easing some of their extreme infection control precautions. So we'll be able to see if once they start allowing their mass transit systems to operate again, allowing people to congregate in public, if the virus starts to emerge in that population, that'll give us a good idea of how exactly long this virus can last and if it is still lurking around waiting to reinfect people once we stop the social distancing measures. Tracy in Salisbury, Missouri asks, is it necessary to quarantine a sick one to a separate room in the home? So in this case, if the person is experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, in that case, you should contact your general, either your general practitioner or your primary or your family doctor and see if they recommend doing anything. But in this case, it's going to be better to try to isolate them to their own bedroom and limit their contact with the rest of the family if you do suspect that they have COVID-19. What are the common symptoms of COVID-19 infection? So the, the main symptoms that seem to be uh, considered telltale signs of COVID-19 would be the, the dry cough, usually in the absence of a runny nose, but otherwise it can present in different people different ways. It can look just like a, the case of the flu. It can be mild. Some people are asymptomatic. There's also emerging evidence in different parts of the world, and it's mostly anecdotal in case reports at this point, but there does seem to be some diarrhea associated with this disease as well in a subset of patients. On the subject of treatment, Suzanne is in West Bend, Wisconsin, and asks, if you get sick, how long until you are recovered and can be around other people? So this does vary by case to case. Generally speaking, from the onset of symptoms, it may be another two weeks before you're completely cleared. That time is probably of an abundance of caution. And as we get more data, we may be able to determine if that 14 days 
is too long or about right or maybe even a too short period of time. But I believe that's one of the current recommendations is for about two weeks of quarantine before you can be around people. On the subject of treatment, Hillary asks, what are the doctor's thoughts about erythromycin and hydroxychloroquine treatment? So this is a tricky question because there was one study done looking at the effect of azithromycin and hydrochloroquine treatment. And in it, they did show that these treatments, they decrease the amount of viral RNA detected in the patients. However, when you actually read this study, it shows that the patients who received those treatments are also the only patients in the study that either died or were intubated. So if you're looking at the primary output of your study as patient outcome and patient health, the the treatments did not seem to be effective. Gail in Napa, Idaho asks, are ibuprofen and acetaminophen dangerous if you take them after having contracted COVID-19? So the NSAIDs like ibuprofen are thought to most likely be fine, but there are some studies showing that they could increase the risk of, of severe disease. And so I think in an effort to do no harm, trying to avoid NSAIDs like ibuprofen or Aleve is probably a good route to go, but acetaminophen would likely be okay to alleviate some of the symptoms associated with COVID-19. Joan asks, I'm having a hard time finding any real advice on home care if one has the symptoms, but not severe enough to hospitalize. Several hospitals are saying vitamin C is helpful, although certainly isn't a cure. What would you say about, for milder cases, home care? So in that case, it's going to be a lot like if you have the flu. Make sure that you're getting plenty of fluids, plenty of rest, and go from there. Vitamin C can't hurt And so just trying to just treat someone as if they were recovering from the bad case of the flu uh, would generally be good advice. And then make sure to monitor their symptoms. And if they seem to be getting worse, go ahead and and call your primary care physician to to see if it's worth going in and getting them reevaluated. Michelle says, is fever the best symptom to gauge if you should be checked? I also heard the Admiral state that older people may run a low fever to be checked, even if it's 99.6 or above. Is that accurate? I think because there is a very diverse presentation of COVID-19, some people are asymptomatic, some people are much sicker and have much higher fever, that using fever as the only diagnostic and screening measure to see if you have the disease or not isn't going to be effective, but it's certainly one tool to try to help triage the number of sick people into determining who may have a more severe case or not. And generally, a more severe case would probably have a higher temperature. We're talking with Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth. He's postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, taking listener questions about COVID-19. We'll talk about people who think they might have already had COVID-19. In 1939, the British Army received an Enigma machine that helped them crack the secret Nazi codes in World War II. 
In the March issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Sam Schultheitz writes about the Screwtape Letters, a book written by C.S. Lewis, a type of enigma machine for deciphering the temptations of Satan. Read the March issue of The Lutheran Witness to learn more about the Screwtape Letters and how Satan tempts us today. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're journeying on in Hebrews, Jesus' source of eternal salvation, warning against falling away, a sure and steadfast anchor, Melchizedek, and an indestructible life. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Your sun-bleached felt church banners have seen better days. Held together with staples and superglue, they are a monument to Aunt Mabel's pastel-toned creativity from 1960. But it's time for a refresh. Ad Crucem has the solution that doesn't even need a Sharpie. We proudly offer Scapegoat Studios creations as well as Ad Crucem's original banners. Come and browse our wide selection of seasonal church banners. We also create banners and church signs to your design. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Public schools are increasingly chaotic and undermine Christian children's faith. We need to rebuild our Lutheran schools to provide a truly Christian alternative. Redeemer Classical School is rebuilding this Christ-focused education in Fort Wayne, Indiana, teaching students to wonder at God's creation and to love their neighbors. We need you to help us give children this faithful Christian education. Donations to Redeemer Classical School go directly to providing scholarships. Visit fortwayneclassical.com give. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. the Philadelphia Orchestra with the Christmas hymn Hark the Herald Angels Sing playing right now on our 24-7 sacred music station since it is the day of the Annunciation March 25th and Christ's birth is being promised by the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary we take a little break from Lenten music and play music of Christ's incarnation you can listen to sacred Christmas music until midnight central 
at lutheranpublicradio.org and on the LPR mobile app. We're taking listener questions about COVID-19 with Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth, postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Many people are wondering whether or not they might have already had COVID-19. Barb says, thoughts on whether or not a very rough illness in our family in January might have been COVID-19. Aches, cough, low fever lasting two weeks. Son-in-law was tested and it was not influenza. So in that case, there are a lot of viruses that cause these sorts of symptoms. Depending on uh, where your family is located, there were in an area where we there was widespread community cases of COVID-19, that it's certainly a possibility. However, as we all know from getting sick in years besides this winter, there are quite a few illnesses that cause severe, quite a few diseases that cause severe illness similar to, to COVID-19. And so I would say it's unlikely that it was COVID-19, again, depending on where your family's located, but it's, you can't rule it out. That being said, as a scientific community, we're starting to roll out serological assays, we would, would be able to, after you've been infected, be able to tell you if your body has already been exposed to the virus. So we could diagnose after the fact and say whether that you were infected, although that would most likely be used in a research setting, but could be used in a clinical setting to, to rule out the possibility of reinfection. Rebecca wants to know if it's a good idea to go to the lab for routine lab work if you are healthy. I would say that this is a a question for you to talk with your primary care physician. If this is just a well visit, I would imagine that the primary care physician may recommend just trying to have a, a teledoc visit and doing the labs at a later time. But if the patient may be at risk for certain diseases, then it may be worth it in that case to go in and get the blood draw. But that would have to be something that would be recommended by the primary care physician. Karen is asking how a person best defends against COVID-19 if they already have another one of the SARS coronaviruses. So yeah, in this case, if you have the virus and you're trying to avoid getting the the severe disease associated with COVID-19, I think supportive care in that case, is going to be the best case of action. And for that, it's going to be making sure that you get lots of rest, lots of fluids, try to keep some food down. The virus infection is associated with a a decreased appetite, but trying to keep some food down, you know, soups and things like that. So a lot of the things that people do when they're sick with another respiratory virus are going to be beneficial to people that have even mild cases of COVID-19. Marie listens in Lake City, Iowa. She says, how does the virus linger in the air or how long does it linger in the air? If our church is planning for multiple small services, how long should we wait between gatherings to be safe or does it matter? So there was a a recent study done by several groups, principally at the National Institutes of Health and at the Rocky Mountain Lab, showing that this virus can be transmitted in the air although it seems to prefer to be transmitted in larger droplets that tend to drop faster. And so that's where you get the social distancing, trying to stay about six feet away from people, because those droplets that seem to be 
maximally transmissible don't travel very far. That being said, not all droplets are the same size. And so if someone were to sneeze in a church, there's a chance that those particles could get in the air and float around for hours. So generally speaking, spending, allowing some time, at least an hour or two between services would be beneficial, but ideally the longer the better. Bob wants to know what the true mortality rate for the virus is. He says, we are not being told the recovery rate or how much of our population has been sampled by testing to obtain a true infection or prediction of the infection rate. This is something I've noticed as well, Dr. Wolgamuth, and that is big numbers are thrown out without distinguishing of between people who are actively sick or who have recovered. What should we know? So yeah, this is a great question, and it's common with emerging viruses in that it's the people who are most sick are most likely to seek medical care and if and then be diagnosed. And so what you can see sometimes is mortality rates that start off really high. And then as we test more and more people and realize that there are more and more mild cases and asymptomatic cases, that case fatality rate can decrease quite a bit. Some of the initial case fatality rates out of Wuhan, China, were as high as 8%. And now it's looking more like it's going to be in that uh, less than 1, but greater than 0.2 rate. And so that number could still go down as we test more and more people and identify more and more asymptomatic infections. But it's important to realize that even the case fatality rate of 0.2 is going to end up killing a lot of people because no one has immunity. And we do expect this virus to stick around and infect a large percentage of the population over the next 18 months to a few years. Ken asks, what's the story about ordering takeout food or some safer than others? And how can we determine which we might be able to use and which we should not or avoid altogether? So the takeout food question is good. There's a study out there saying how long the virus can survive on different surfaces. It's important to note that in that paper, when you actually read the paper, they say that while virus can survive on these surfaces for a very long period of time, it actually loses quite a bit of its infectivity over time. So you can still detect infectious virus, but just a much smaller dose, and a dose that would therefore be less likely to get you infected. That being said, I think taking common sense precautions and wiping down the outer surface of the, the takeout container would be uh, one way to try to uh, minimize any health risk or transmission from takeout food. What's happened and I've done before recently just the other day was I had food delivered and we did a meaningless transfer where the delivery person and I waved the door, he left it on the doorstep and left and then I came out and picked up the food. And so doing stuff like that, uh, avoiding some of the contact can be very helpful in preventing transmission. Terry in Torrington, Wyoming asks, do you see a foretime foresee a time when a blood test can determine whether we have an immunity to this disease? So, yeah, those assays are actually currently being developed. There was an excellent paper characterizing a very effective uh, serology-based assay that would be able to do exactly that. It will take a while to ramp up, but a great group created this assay pretty quick 
And so they're and they're distributing it and they're being uh, very helpful in getting other labs set up with that procedure. So it could end up being up in a pretty quick period of time. Regarding masks, we had several questions from listeners. Jan saying people are being asked to sew face masks at home or homemade face masks effective protection against COVID-19. Unfortunately, some of the face masks that are, are just cloth have not been shown to be effective in preventing the, the risk of disease. That being said, there are reports of certain filters that could be sewn into the face masks that do make them more effective. And obviously using the CDC recommended either N95 respirator or a surgical mask is going to be better protection for healthcare professionals, but it does look like we could try to optimize the effectiveness of cloth masks by instituting the insertion of different filters in them and trying different things to make them more effective. Teresa listens in Sioux City, Iowa. I have heard that face masks shown in promotional pictures are not effective because of the gaps around the face. Is this true? And if true, would this be a great opportunity to teach others to prevent false security? So yeah, the the important thing here is that there are two main types of masks people are talking about and that I just alluded to. The first is an N95 respirator, which is a very tight-fitting mask, and you actually need to, in an occupational setting, be fit-tested for it to make sure that it fits very tight, but that when it is fitting tight, you can still, still breathe appropriately. The problem with these masks is that because they fit so tight, they're very, very uncomfortable. And because they're uncomfortable, people usually try to get the, you know, the one size bigger mask because it's more comfortable, but that bigger mask is going to allow for more airflow from the sides and be less effective. Those masks are really going to be the most useful in the hands of medical professionals. So if you have any, I'd recommend donating them to your local hospital. The surgical masks, on the other hand, can be effective if used properly. However, very few people know the correct way to put on and off the mask and how to wear them in such a way to try to minimize the airflow that can come in from the sides. And so if you have some surgical face masks, they are going to, if you use them perfectly, they can offer you some protection, but not much. And so for for me, if I'm at work and I'm trying to avoid either infecting someone or spreading infection, what I would do is I would wear a mask in that case. But if I'm out grocery shopping, I'm not wearing a mask because in low-risk situations like that, uh, they really don't offer much protection. And as the, the listener pointed out, they can give you a sense of false security that could make you bolder and more likely to go out when really they are only offering uh, minimal protection. Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth is our guest, postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. We're answering listeners' questions about COVID-19. Who is vulnerable? We'll answer some of those next. I've written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled Closed Communion, Biblical, Historical, Lutheran, and Loving. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. 
In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Nancy Almodovar writes about her journey from the profound doubt produced by her former Calvinist beliefs to the absolute certainty of Lutheran theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Recently graduated from high school or college and looking for a chance to serve a community in need while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Lutheran Young Adult Corps may be for you. Lutheran Young Adult Corps provides opportunities for long-term, full-time service for 10 weeks through the summer or 10 months over the school year in places like St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Find out more about Lutheran Young Adult Corps by finding us online at lcms.org slash Y-A-C-O-R-P-S or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lutheran Y-A Corps. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. The Simply Classical curriculum for special needs moves at my child's pace and gives her exactly what she needs. So writes Amber, a homeschooling mother who has joined thousands in homes and schools, teaching from this uniquely Christian classical approach to special education. Teach students with autism, learning disabilities, or Down syndrome based on ability level rather than chronological age. Use promo code LPR20 today at classicalspecialneeds.com, classicalspecialneeds.com. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Organist Service, aptly abbreviated SOS, really has come to our rescue. Pastor Jim Hollowatch of Christ Lutheran Church in Jackson, Mississippi. With the ever-growing shortage of skilled musicians in our community, we were approaching a real crisis. But thanks to the Substitute Organist Service, help is always just minutes away. With its easy, intuitive interface, friendly customer service, and outstanding musicianship, you really couldn't ask for more. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Ten more minutes in our conversation with Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth answering our questions about COVID-19. He's an LCMS layman and postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Dr. Wolgamuth, a lot of the questions came around the kind of the epicenter of who is most vulnerable to COVID-19. Caro writes this, how vulnerable are people of any age who have asthma, I noticed the CDC put out ads listing this as an underlying condition, but the vice president now seems to be saying that it's only elderly people with underlying conditions that are of the gravest concern. So, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of data yet to support or understand what groups are going to be most at risk. For a lot of respiratory viruses, we know that certain things like asthma, 
are uh, known comorbidities that can lead to a risk of severe disease. So I don't think we have enough data yet to show that asthma and COVID-19 is going to be a high risk factor for COVID-19, but I would expect that it very well could be. One of the interesting things that's come out so far is that we know for respiratory viruses, especially influenza, pregnant women seem to be a very high risk group for severe influenza virus disease. And at least so far with only a small sample and small number of case reports that have come out so far, pregnant women don't seem to be at a higher risk for severe COVID-19 disease. So it's too early to tell for some things, but I would expect that, yeah, someone with asthma and other pre-existing conditions are going to be at higher risk. That is to say that we do know that there is good evidence that people with underlying cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure do seem to be at increased of severe COVID-19 disease. Would that make smokers especially at risk? Yes. And actually, some of the very early reports in China, where it's much more common for men to be smokers than than women, saw a very large sex difference where men were much more likely to get severe disease than women. Some of that could just be from the biological differences between men and women, but the cigarette smoking was almost certainly a a big factor as well. Stephen in Libby, Montana, asks... How can a single virus manifest such different symptoms in people? How is one to determine when to seek medical aid when a fever is present in this person, but not in that one? So this is pretty common in in viruses. Uh, I think we've come to learn that the canonical symptoms of influenza virus, the bad body aches, the sudden onset, don't happen to everyone. We have quite people that are asymptomatic. And that can be for a number of reasons. Their immune system could be just really ready to attack a virus at that time. They could have some level of pre-existing immunity. In this case, most people haven't been infected with the SARS-like virus, but we're still not sure if you got a common cold version of a coronavirus, if there may be some cross-protection from that. So potentially having had a, a recent cold caused by a common cold of coronavirus could potentially lead to some short-term protection from something like SARS-CoV-2. And then another thing would be that the, the risk factors that we discussed earlier, especially the heart disease and the older age, can be strong predictors for this severe disease. That being said, when you should seek medical advice for fever and different symptoms, the way the process is is supposed to work right now is that once you believe you're sick with something like a respiratory illness that could be COVID-19, you're supposed to call your primary care physician and talk to them and see what the next step should be. And they may tell you to come in and get tested. They may tell you to try to find a drive-through testing facility. And they they may tell you to go directly to the hospital if the symptoms you are describing are already pretty severe. But I think having a regular conversation with your doctor about the symptoms that you're having are going to be the important way to determine about when you are sick enough to either go get tested or go seek immediate medical treatment. Joan asks, how old is elderly when it comes to COVID-19? So the way the current recommendations are is that 
people over the age of 60 are generally considered at higher risk, but it really is linear. So just because you're 59 doesn't mean you're safe, and it does seem to get worse the older you are. So the people at the highest risk do seem to be people that are 80 or older, and then people 60 or older are considered at least at somewhat of an increased risk. But yeah, like I said, just because you're 59 or 55 doesn't mean you're totally safe. And we're also seeing cases of severe disease in people in their 20s. So it's hard to say for sure, but if you've got an elderly parent or grandparent or you yourself are in the age of, in the high 80s, low 90s, I would be extra sure to avoid social contact and try to minimize your risk of catching this disease. You had mentioned the effect that COVID-19 might have on pregnant women. Adam asks, what about unborn babies, young children? I've read stats coming out of New York indicating higher rates for younger people becoming seriously ill, although not dying, than was previously expected, and some of those women appeared to have been pregnant. So, yeah, like I was saying earlier, and with a lot of the data that I've been talking about, it, it's really too early to make a lot of you know strong scientific conclusions about what's going on, but it does seem from a minimum number of case reports that age-matched pregnant women are not at increased risk of disease compared to the same aged women that aren't pregnant. However, we do, in those studies, they did not show any transmission of the virus from the mother to the baby, either during birth or during breastfeeding. But the New York samples are actually a good case of where lots of other parts of the world were seeing that it's really mostly the older people being hospitalized. We are seeing a much higher percentage of young individuals in New York and in the United States in general coming down with severe disease. And that's not something that we really expected to see, but it's it's definitely out there. And then for newborn babies, I think because we already do a lot to try to protect them because their immune systems are still developing, try to avoid their contact with people, especially people uh, exhibiting symptoms of any infectious disease, would be a good idea. And from the studies, we do know that newborn babies and infants are potentially at a risk for more severe COVID-19. So it's a good idea to, to keep them away from any high-risk people. Zachary asks this question regarding medical ethics. Doctors are wrestling with limited resources in choosing who receives care and who does not. Christian patients are laying down their lives for their non-Christian neighbors, but in all other cases, do we cast lots or adopt the utilitarian principles of today? So I think it's really tough. I don't envy the, the physicians and the care providers that are in the position of having only a limited number of ventilators and having to decide whether to potentially take a patient off a ventilator because they're unlikely to uh, survive the outcome of the disease and give that ventilator to someone who's more likely to survive with the, with the use of that. I think what we can do now is try to, before this gets too bad in the United States, make sure we are ramping up production of these critical uh, medical devices to try to not have to put both patients and physicians through the, those incredibly difficult decisions. Finally then, Dr. Wolgamuth, 
What is the best piece of medical advice that you could give our listeners in this time of COVID-19 infection? I would say that the best advice would be to follow the, the CDC recommendations and get as much information as you can. I think I, I, I tried to make it clear throughout that there's a lot we know or we think we know, but there's a lot that is still evolving and that we don't know. And so staying up to date on the current COVID-19 information and following the CDC guidelines and making sure to stay engaged. And, and sometimes it's tough to read the news. It's scary, but just making sure that you're following the, the latest guidelines from the CDC and other medical bodies would be incredibly important. Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth is an LCMS layman, postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Dr. Wolgamuth, thanks for being our guest and thanks for your service. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. This is an uncertain time for children as well, and I can think of no better way to comfort your children in the midst of these uncertain times than the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March. It's written by Pastor Will Whedon. It's a children's book called See My Savior's Hands. It delivers the gospel, telling the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Find out more about See My Savior's Hands at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March. See My Savior's Hands by Pastor Will Whedon. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll discuss social distancing and depression with Pastor Todd Peppercorn. We'll continue our series on the Lutheran Confessions, talking with Pastor Paul McCain about original sin in the solid declaration of the formula of Concord. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water, or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636-250-3350.